Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin, and you all know that I will take any opportunity I can to drag the state of Texas. So that's what we're going to be talking about today and what it will mean potentially going forward for other states. So some of you know from being in my classes, if you were a student of mine, that I particularly have beef with the state of Virginia, the state of Florida, and the state of Texas. And even though I talk about, you know, states regionally, like when I discuss like the North, right? Like I have issues with the North about how they handled Reconstruction. Also, I have issues with the West for how they handled the Great Migration, as well as people who were fleeing from the terrorism of Jim Crow in the South. But specifically when it comes to states, Texas is in that top three. So we're going to be talking about some recent things that were legislated in Texas and how that relates to what's going on in case you hadn't heard about it. So the governor of Texas, who is Greg Abbott, signed a bill that effectively bans DEI offices at public colleges and universities within the state of Texas. So DEI stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And of course, all this is being done under the guise of saving millions of dollars of taxpayer money. And they're also claiming like the people who are um, supporting the cutting of these funds, they're saying that Having DEI actually encourages racism um, and promotes a differential treatment of an individual or group of individuals based on race, color, or ethnicity. And I think most people initially think about race when they think about DEI, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm just going to refer to it as DEI from now on. I think a lot of people tend to think about race and Like I mentioned, I'm working on a series that I want to call The Cult of the Middle Class, and this is part of it, because the creation of race as a, I mean, it would be one thing if it was just a category, right? If it was just a way that people were categorized based on the definition of race, which is having phenotypic traits commonly found within a population of people. If it was just a categorization and it didn't have any weight or status, then it wouldn't really matter, right? Then then the argument could be made <laughs> that funding this is irrelevant because it, you know, being categorized as one way or another has no bearing on how people are treated. But we know that that's not true. We know that the sorry, I'm heated. We know that the creation of race as a caste system inherently means in a capitalist nation and in a capitalist world that people get positioned on the totem pole, the scale, the spectrum, whatever you want to use they get positioned as being has or have not somewhere on a scale and different things can be on that scale there are different scales within different communities so race is one scale in which people do or don't have access to things based on where they are categorized again not where they categorize themselves which is why i've said before on my words mean things diaspora parts one through four is that it's not about how you identify, it's how other people identify you. So in this case, it's not about where you put yourself on the spectrum of race, it's about where you are identified on that spectrum by usually dominant society or even people who are around you in everyday life, right? Like many different people who look at me are going to be able to see that I am a, I am a black woman, 
So that's kind of where that phrase racial ambiguity comes in. If some of you have heard that word, it's like when you're looking at someone, you can't really tell, right? But usually this impacts people who are very clearly a part of a part of any particular group. So ability is also another spectrum, right? Because again, having full range of ability is completely different than having what is what are called disabilities. So if you are somebody who can't see or who has limited range of vision, you have more access to things, excuse me, you don't have as much access to things as people who do have a full range of vision, who can see down the street, who can see down the road, you know, you don't have to have um, a special classification on your license if you have a full range of vision. So I think 2020 vision, right? You, if you can use both of your legs to walk with, you know, the standard pace, you don't need to have accommodations for stairs or walkways or, you know, even like those moving belts, right? Those are meant to help those things like for people in airports, right? It's about accessibility. So accessibility or ability is another spectrum and people who do have full range of their abilities physically or mentally have less barriers than people who don't. Same thing with money. People who have more money have more access than people who don't have as much money. And it's not just about things like buying season passes to theme parks or investing a bunch of money in any given venture or whatever, or being able to pursue your passion projects. This is even for like buying food, purchasing water, trying to lo- you know trying to secure a loan for a car right and what you have access to and the interest rates you have access to all of those things matter so going back to texas when you're defunding diversity equity and inclusion it's not just about race it's also those other populations of people who may potentially be discriminated against So when we're talking about ability, DEI incentives also include people who have disabilities or other abilities or don't have a full range of their physical abilities. However you categorize it, I know there are some changes to the language, which is completely um, great, I think, or that we can't think of everything as like a deficit model. So having different abilities on the spectrum of abilities is also part of DEI initiatives. Having less money as a working class family and, you know, I don't have to preach to the choir. I'm sure many of you are probably from working class families and, you know, maybe not, if not, you know, don't mention it right now, (laughs) but you know that these types of DEI programs also create funding opportunities for students whose families or themselves don't have as much money, but you still have the ability to succeed at whatever program you're at. So being able to get your applications for college transfer funded through DEI incentives, being able to have low cost um, tickets to go on campus tours is part of it. Having research research projects funded is part of that. So DEI is not just about race. And it's wild to me as a black American, as a woman, as an educator, 
that you have so many people who don't understand just how much is encompassed in DEI beyond just race. Okay, that's very, very important. So when they're saying, oh, we're trying to save all this money, it's like, really? Do you know what all that money is for? Are you aware of all of the people who may or may not be racial minorities, but who are still on that spectrum of vulnerable classes of people who are helped through that? And actually, I've talked about this before because I mentioned I believe her name is Abigail Fisher, was a young white woman who was challenging the Supreme Court or trying to challenge the Supreme Court because she didn't get into the University of Texas at Austin. And she was claiming that affirmative action meant that less qualified black and Latino kids were the ones who got into the school besides her and she should have gotten in. And then when they did the audit, they realized that like what, like 70 or 80% of the people who got into the University of Texas at Austin on this, you know, um, like, I don't even know, because I mean, I guess we'll just use affirmative action, but on this idea for like, you know, their classification being a minority, most of them were white women. So and so was she. So again, it's like, People don't really look at who's really being serviced by this stuff. It is so crazy to me. So it's SB 17. It says it bans DEI. And um, Texas has the largest population of of African-Americans, I guess, in the state. This is what um, a representative of the Black Caucus of Texas is saying. And it's unwilling to confront systemic inequalities and provide inclusive learning environments for all students. Now, the guess is this isn't even just Texas. So some of you know that one of the other states on my list, right, Florida, they have recently, well, Ron DeSantis signed a bill to defund DEI programs at public colleges. That was in April. And then apparently North Dakota... Governor Doug Burgum is also signing a, a, well, I guess making into law a ban on mandatory training for students and employees on what they consider to be divisive concepts, including race. So, yeah, there, and I know some of you have heard some of the talking points about you know, and it's, I think it's interesting that they're not using CRT anymore. Now they're focusing on DEI. So initially when I had heard about a lot of this, it was with trying to say that, you know, CRT, which is critical race theory, is not something that's okay or appropriate to teach kids, right? It's always brought in under the guise of like the appropriateness for children. Um, even though those of us who are in education know that children are never taught concepts of CRT. Now they are usually presented with diverse viewpoints to learn about different national groups of people, right? And there may be a module somewhere, I would say probably in the fourth or fifth grade about, you know, the impacts of racism or like how people have treated people of different groups in the past. I mean, I kind of remember some light work about that. And like, by the time I got to the fifth or sixth grade, but you don't talk about the concepts, the macro concepts of critical race theory at that age. That's never been a thing. And so for them, them, as in they, the people who are trying to ban any part of discussing the differences that society has set up 
for people of different groups, including race, for them to standardize it on the idea that it's about not teaching these concepts to kids is really wild because, again, it never was. Many states are actively currently trying to um, defund libraries that have books that show a diverse range of authors or viewpoints. These are public libraries. So public libraries are supposed to serve the public. These aren't, you know, libraries that are at elementary schools or other primary schools. These are city and county funded library systems that serve as adults. So saying that, you know, Langston Hughes or Kurt Vonnegut or, you know, other authors are, you know, just writing a bunch of smut that you want to keep out of the hands of kids. Like, what does that have to do with the public library? They literally have children's sections. And some of those books are for children who are living in diverse family situations or who are adopted or who have abilities or disabilities or who have different types of handicaps or who, you know, have same sex parents like, come on. So everything is just like changing as far as them, you know, trying to defund things. And I think a lot of the people who bought into it initially again you know of course they didn't ask or consult any education specialists who told who would tell them that crt is not something that is ever taught to people in primary school and barely in secondary school because if you think about it i mean me being an educator for 10 years i can tell you that most people by the time they get to the community college level where i was teaching had never heard of most of the stuff that i was talking about So, again, that is something that you learn at the college level. And so now that they started out with trying to change school curriculum at the primary and secondary levels, which primary is what, K through six or K through five, and then secondary is usually starting at the sixth or seventh grade and goes through 12th grade, depending on your district. But either way, They started out trying to, you know, determine what teachers could and couldn't teach, which books they could and couldn't read. There are increasingly parents, and it's funny that people make fun of boomers all the time, and I say this to the kids in my class, you know, kids, like they're in their 20s, late teens, but I tell them, you know, people make fun of boomers all the time, but Gen Z and even millennials, you know, can be sometimes worse because they've weaponized the internet against people. So now you have people who are in my, I guess they, some of them would be Gen X, some of them are millennials, and they're going to school board meetings and complaining about their kids having, you know, learning from a book. I remember when I was in middle school, I went to middle school overseas. And so it was a Department of Defense school. Um, and we were always meant to give our the utmost respect to the teachers. Now, I would say a good like chunk, I would say a good half of the teachers that I had there were Chamorro. So they were native to the island of Guam. And, you know, we used to call our teachers sir and miss. And I remember some of you who, if I don't think anyone I went to high school with listens to this, if so, you know, hey, but... Um, I used to call my teacher sir or miss even when I came back right from overseas and I was in high school 
um, because I just got used to doing it. And we had a teacher who was, a, I guess, a language arts, so like the equivalent of like an English or, you know, reading class. And she was reading us A Child Called It. And I remember that was a really controversial book at the time because the author was talking, I don't forgot his name, but the author was talking about enduring child abuse and um, physical child abuse and emotional child abuse. And I remember that the teacher would read it to us after we would come into the class. And I think we had her class like right after lunch or right after like a play period. So, um, or maybe, you know, it may have been right after PE because I remember we would usually be tired. And they used to make us run the arc light every Friday. So we used to have to run like a mile and a half every week. So we would be like tired from playing and then having to like run around this big plane on base um, for a mile and a half. And then she would read us the book. So a lot of us would use that time to like put our heads down or just relax. And like she would turn off the lights and she'd read the book. And I'm, she was one of my favorite teachers, Mrs. Tori. But um, we had one girl in the class whose mom was, I would say, by today's standards, she would probably be pretty religiously conservative or at least conservative. And she didn't want her daughter, I forgot her name. She, she was a nice girl, but she didn't want um, her daughter to listen to the book. And so what happened was while the rest of us were in, you know, they, again, my point for bringing this up is that they didn't make Mrs. Tory stop reading us the book. They just said, okay, she, this student can leave and go to the library during that 30 minutes that they read it and she can do something else. And that's what they did. But they did not tell Mrs. Tory that she could not read the rest of us the book because this one parent had a problem with it. So now you have these people who are complaining about the books that their children are learning about or that are reading in their classes. And instead of the school saying, okay, your kid can go to the library during that time and do something else or read another book or do their homework, they're just telling the teacher, well, you can't read it at all. So now nobody gets to read it. And this is part of the problem. So when they're starting out saying that it's meant to keep kids away from these concepts... And then it, of course, blended over like it always does. Like I tell you all, it's like throwing a pebble in a pond. It has ripple effects. So it starts out being, oh, well, this is about the kids. And then, of course, it eventually balloons out, bubbles out, ripples out. And then you realize, okay, now they're defunding public, publicly funded colleges within the state. Now they're taking it away from the adults, and they're saying that learning about American history, these things happened. They are facts. Primary source evidence. Talking and learning about what people have gone through in this country so that you can understand how that affects the people who are currently alive that you work with, eat around, live nearby, the people who are in your areas and in other parts of the you know area that you live maybe even if you don't interact with them directly on a daily basis it's meant to give you some context for why they're upset about the things that are currently happening to them 
why they don't trust medical professionals because of the long history of sterilizing Spanish-speaking women, sterilizing black women, sterilizing inmates, right? This whole idea of like what is considered consent if it's a population of people who has been deemed undesirable on that racial caste system. Talking about how people with disabilities have been misrepresented in the media, who have been made the butt of jokes, right? That terminology that you use now is offensive to people who have these ability spectrum ranges, right? So saying certain things is not okay anymore. It's offensive. And now that doesn't mean that you're woke, because you don't want to use the R word, right? Like retarded. That doesn't mean that you're woke. It means that you understand that like that word has been used to weaponize against people who have disabilities. Physical, emotional, mental, whatever, intellectual, whatever, right? That's the issue here. And mark my words, this is definitely going to affect people who are a part of the group of people who are considered disabled or who, like I mentioned earlier, are considered other-abled on that spectrum. Now, commonly we think about the Civil Rights Act of 1960 when we're talking about, um, well, 1964, I would say, which mentioned about how, you know, you're not supposed to be discriminating against people based on things like race. But I want to break down some other things that are very important for this, because the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is really used as the starting point for what is now considered DEI, right? Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. So there are titles that are a part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that I'm going to go over. The first title is about voting rights. So making sure that people are not being discriminated against when they're trying to vote, that they're not having to suffer physical violence um, while they're trying to vote or having to be intimidated while they're trying to vote. People used to be killed on their way to vote. They used to be given literacy tests that were supposed to be testing their literacy, but were really civics exams, which most people who I give the test to at UCSD, smartest minds in the state, right? They can't pass it either. So going off of that, it's supposed to eliminate barriers to voting. Title II talks about public accommodations. So it outlaws discrimination of race, color, religion, national origins in hotels, motels, restaurants, theaters, and other pri- uh, excuse me public accommodations. It exempts private um, accommodations, right, that are not open to the public, which is why we still have country clubs that like don't allow Jews or don't accept black people, things like that. Title three desegregation of public facilities, Title IV, desegregation of public education, Title V, Commission on Civil Rights, Title VI, non-discrimination in federally assisted programs, Title VII, equal employment opportunity. I talk about this one all the time. We know that people didn't used to get jobs based on their political party affiliation, based on their religion, based on any part of their national origin, immigration status, race, gender, sexual orientation, the uh, expression of their gender, anything that's included in Title VII. 
Title VIII goes on to offer uh, registration and voting statistics. Title IX, intervention and removal cases. Title X, community relations service. Title XI is miscellaneous. All of these things are important aspects of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that include, again, people, it came to include people who were women. Now, this is important, too, because, like I said, a lot of white women have been, well, excuse me, statistically, as Time Magazine reported a few weeks or months ago, White women have benefited the most from affirmative action. Gender is one of the things you can't discriminate against with the um, Civil Rights Act of 1964. It was a large reason why it passed. So there were many companies, as I talk about in my classes, that didn't want to hire ethnic minorities, so they hired white women. They, because of their gender, were considered a legal protected class as um, one of the groups of people who were supposed to be brought into more... Uh, you know, more range of roles. So that was a loophole that was exploited. These are facts. These are backed up by statistics. Like I mentioned, even with the, um, the whole thing about University of Texas at Austin, right? So let's look at now how they have people. I don't remember what state it, what state it was in. Um, and I don't have the article pulled up anywhere so that I could quickly reference it. But there was a young girl who was being yelled at by a parent. She was being heckled while she was participating in a like a sporting event, like for kids, because the parent insisted that she wasn't really a girl because she had short hair. Now, if I was recording this podcast on video, I would look directly into the camera because that is insane. And I remember I heard one of my colleagues at work whose office is next to mine. I heard her talking to somebody else and she has a short haircut. Very nice. And she was saying to the person in her office, how do we know now that they're not going to try to say that gender expression through having short hair is now illegal, right? Because if they're going to say that we all have to express ours, we have to align with the, or excuse me, our expression of gender has to be aligned with what is on our birth certificate, right? Then that would mean that, you know, someone might make the argument that having short hair is unfeminine. And so now that opens up people who have short haircuts to being harassed by people assuming that they are transgendered. And then, of course, there's nothing wrong with them if they are, just so we're all clear about that. But using it as a way to harass people because you don't think that they're really, quote unquote, a woman because of the way that they're wearing their hair. On the other side, you may have people who start doing that to men who have long hair, accusing them of being transgendered or harassing them, saying things to them. So these things don't stop. And I've made that reference before. I've talked about this for years. If you've had me in class, you've likely heard it right before I even started this podcast. It never stops. It keeps going and going and going. Now, we do have just... um, discrimination legislation that stops you from being discriminated against based on your hairstyle. In California, it's called the Crown Act. Now, on paper, and for most people who um, have heard about it, they immediately think of black people, right? And specifically black women, because black women have historically been discriminated against with how we wore our hair. And again, wearing it the way it grows out of our scalp, 
So wearing our hair in its natural state was seen as militant. It was seen as aggressive, which is why you had people who wore afros in the 1960s, because they said, you know what? I'm not going to put a chemical straightener on my hair so that I don't have to worry about being harassed, so that I won't have to worry about being turned down for a job or turned down for an apartment or having partners who aren't interested in me. That's a whole other thing that's intra-racially that we got to work out too, because many people still uphold a European beauty standard, which is ridiculous because we are not European descended people. But anyway, that was something that it's for, but it also protects other people as well from being discriminated against for how they wear their hair, for having long hair, for having short hair, for dyeing their hair, for anything. And I think a lot of people, again, more modern kind of think of it like the same way with tattoos, Right. So younger people like, well, just because someone has tattoos doesn't mean they can't be a doctor, doesn't mean they can't be a nurse, doesn't mean they can't be a lawyer, doesn't mean they can't be a professor. Absolutely. But it's the same thing with hair or anything else. And again, you can't start it out under the guise of kids. Right. As if you have a bunch of tattooed, pierced people with green, spiky hair teaching kids. That's not the reality of the situation. You're going to have some people, sure, but it also teaches kids that not everybody's going to look like you, right? Part of this is socialization of the learning environment. That's part of education as well. Learning that some people aren't going to look like you. Some people aren't going to have the same abilities as you. Some people aren't going to have the same um, anything as you. Different color, different hair color, different skin color, height, weight, anything, religion, how they, um, like the clothing that they wear because of their religion, but you still need to get along with them anyway. And you know what? If they're in a superior position to you, you're still supposed to take directions from them anyway, because they're your boss. And it doesn't matter that they wear a hijab. It doesn't matter that they're in a wheelchair. It doesn't matter that they're black. They are your supervisor. So you need to do what they told you to do. Like part of that is learned in these environments. And when you expose people to different groups of people, right? Then these kids don't just stare at somebody because like, wow, this is the first person I've ever seen who looks like this. Like that doesn't happen when you socialize them early around different groups of people. I mean, unless they just like really like the way someone looks, I guess, right? But like... People don't socialize their kids as much. And now we just came off the heels of the pandemic, which I know arguably we're still in it. I'm not saying it's completely over yet, but we were all inside for two years, right? Look at how much, look at how much this has changed. During the pandemic, people were, a lot of people were upset about how they couldn't send their kids to school. There are many people who started looking at private schools, religious schools, even if they're not religious people, because they wanted to get their kids in a school, okay? Then you have situations now where now that kids are back in school, now they're focusing on all these teachers and picking apart what they're doing. The state of Florida, I've already reported about this on the podcast, they are bleeding teachers. They are literally trying to get anybody they can who's an adult to get into the classroom, even if they don't have any teaching experience, even if they haven't taken any classes about how to teach or how to teach diverse learners. How many kids do we have now that are on some kind of a spectrum? 
These people don't have any training for how to educate those children to make sure that they can still learn to read or have access to occupational therapy. And again, I'm going to take it back to an original point I made earlier in this same podcast, different schools that are in different wealthier brackets of um, residential neighborhoods have different access to these programs. I was subbing because I used to be a special ed um, aide. So as a sub, so I would go to different schools around the uh, school district, San Diego Unified, and I can not going to name the schools, but I can tell you firsthand that when I was in schools that were north of the 8 freeway, they had an occupational therapist. They It was a whole specialist who'd come in, teach the kids how to make a grocery list, even the kids who were nonverbal. They learned how to make grocery lists. We would walk to the store. He would give them money. They would check out with the checker. He would teach them about how to engage with the person in the way that they could. We didn't have that in the South Bay schools. We didn't have that in schools that were in the south part of San Diego off the 54. They didn't go through all that. Again, these are things that are going to be like, if they cut funding, guess who's going to suffer the most? So again, it's not just about race. It's also about class. It's also about ability. It's also about everything, everything and learning about things that have happened so that you can better understand where people are collectively within many different groups and identities based on their past and how they've been treated where they are today and how that matters to them now is important to being an informed citizen we have a complete, you know, it's, people always say all the time, well, America's so diverse. America's one of the most diverse nations. Yeah. And we're completely doomed we're not doomed because we have the diversity we're doomed because we refuse to learn from it we're doomed because we have an amazing opportunity to be a beacon of hope to show other countries how to do things we have consistently been the leaders of many different times in history in world history america but America was powered by people who did the work, who didn't get credit because of their gender, because of their orientation, because of their race, because of their ability. And now we're finally at a point where it's like, hey, we're going to give these people credit for what they did. We're going to talk about how they were kept out so that we can learn not to repeat that again. Removing that at any level, primary, secondary, post-secondary now because post-secondary is college like post-secondary education is college so it's after 12th grade like these weaken our ability to deal with the reality of these situations and that the fact that they're able to package it as well if you talk about uh race you're inherently racist oh really so if we talk about Religious persecution? Are we inherently, you know, religiously phobic? I don't know what that phrase would be. I'm, I'm sure there's a word for that. If we talk about how women still don't get paid as much as men, we're not even going to talk about the racial wealth gap, but let's talk about the gender wealth gap. You know, does that mean that we inherently hate women? No, it means that we can acknowledge it. We can walk and chew gum and snap our fingers. This used to be the United States of America. And now it's just smoking near an open window. So I'm done. I think I covered a lot more than I initially thought. I was pretty upset, but I'm proud of myself. I didn't curse. Hey, Dad. Um, But I hope you all have a good rest of your day or night. 
please read up on the Civil Rights Act of 1964 if you're not familiar. There were previous legislations that it was amended by, so I believe there was one in... 1957 or 1960 and then you know the one in 64 superseded that i would also read up on title nine the non-discrimination for um for basically for women but i mean who knows again who knows how far they'll take it maybe next thing you know they'll be defunding women's sports so it'll be just like it was in the 70s and the 80s uh let's see i would also recommend reading up on specifically the legislation in Florida and Texas and North Dakota. And then also even South Carolina, I saw this thread on Twitter um, and they were talking about, but I'm going to save it for like the cult of the middle class. We are talking about Nikki Haley and how this is somebody who is a person of color who comes from an immigrant family, but is now making it seem as if like learning about that experience, of course they're framing it as far as like black people, right? But that learning about diverse diverse experiences is wrong and they shouldn't be funding it. It's like, um, I think, what's her name? Her name's Nimrata, I believe. No, it's Nimrata. So it's like, all right, Nimrata, let's talk about it, right? Let's talk about how you've benefited from these programs and these accesses and how you literally are a child of these waves of immigration. And that it should be celebrated. But how now you're using that to weaponize against other people who you don't think worked as hard as you. It is really wild to me how much people just don't know the history of this country or even the histories of their states. And they claim to like love the country. It's like, well, why don't you read a book about what happened? <laughs> why don't you learn from different perspectives so that we can make it better for everybody? Okay. Well, like I said, hope you all have a good rest of your day or night and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.